Hello and namaste. I'm Peter Furco, and this is Peter's Podcast, where we talk about real yoga, actual happiness, and deep living. Thanks for joining me. Today on Peter's Podcast, we're at home and then we're away. I'm sitting here. You may hear, hear a little purr because my cat has decided to sit on the microphone table. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Wendy Newton, my wife and yoga master. Listeners have commented how much you like our breakfast table chats, so we're going to have one. I hope you like this one too. I learned some fun new things about Wendy myself in this one. Then later on, we head out. I catch up with Jenny Bloom, and we talk about the Me Too moment in light of some yoga insights. I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Per per per. Hey there, we are in the kitchen. Wendy is stirring her cafe latte. Hi, Wendy. Hi, Peter. So for t- today for Peter's podcast. Um, I decided to do something um, a little different and a little the same. I've I've gotten to interview a few different people for the podcast and let them tell their yoga stories. And I thought I'd um, let you all hear a bit about Wendy's story. So here I am with uh, Yogi Raj Wendy Newton. Hi, Wendy. How's it going? It's going well. I just had a breakfast. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Unlike uh, like the classic podcast, I don't know if you know this out if in the listening world, but for people who do broadcasting and whatnot, the, the traditional way that you test someone's microphone is that you ask them what they had for breakfast. <laughs> so we're just incorporating, incorporating that right into the podcast. Scrambled eggs with cheddar cheese. Yeah. Micah's barking, of I'm, course, because she always up. does. Micah, leave it. Cup of tea. What else? I don't know. I tried to put on some music so Micah would be masked from all the many things that make her bark. She's just part of the the cappuccino morning. Part of the soundtrack. The cappuccino interview. Yeah. Yeah. Cappuccino interview. That's a level of you join on patreon.com where your questions pop to the top of the list when we were talking about the podcast. So Micah's always trying to jump the line. (laughs) Yeah. She's her, her father's puppy. Yeah. I guess so. So anyway, Wendy Newton. Hi. So you've been uh, practicing yoga for a long time. Where'd you grow up? I grew up on the Upper West Side of New York City. New Yorker, a, a native New Yorker. Native New Yorker. There's a lot, uh, a lot of those, but not not a lot of those too. You know, I find people say you actually grew up here. Yeah, because so many people come here. Yeah. Yeah, for for business or experience there's a classic saying you should come to new york so you don't get too soft and you should leave so you don't get too hard (laughs) that's funny yeah Yeah. i'm a little bit of both a little too soft and a little too hard (laughs) but yeah i grew up on the upper west side of manhattan and i went to school in greenwich village when i was a little kid and I went to school in Brooklyn when I was a little bit older. Yeah, for high school. I, for high school. And uh, I was on the subway at, I think, in fourth grade, I was allowed to go on the subway by myself to school. Yeah. Which was different because it was the 70s. That's yeah. what we did. Yeah. And there was, that was the time when uh, New York had a little bit more of a crime reputation crime reputation mm-hmm. yeah well, I, well deserved yeah well deserved yeah i was i was allowed to be on broadway or on central park west but not in between uh-huh. so we had to take the bus across uh-huh. we were Those allowed to take blocks. the bus across yeah yeah wow and um the upper west side at that time was sort of a, a mix of like you're describing, crime and residences and... Yeah, it was always very residential. It wasn't It wasn't crime like you would think of it now. It was like um, the projects mm. were in between 
Broadway. It was everything was just a little gritty. Everything was just a little all mixed in. Yeah, you graffiti know. everywhere. There was graffiti everywhere. There was I don't know. It's just a really different feeling yeah. to the city than it and all changed in the eighties. It's funny to to even think about that because now the Upper West Side is you know like gentrified, desirable mm-hmm. real estate. Although mm-hmm. it was always gentrified. No, it always it just, was. It always was. It's you know. <laughs> it just had a different. Quality. You know, because everything in New York yeah. hat is has a different quality now. Yeah, well, they they uh, things changed after Reagan came into office, and we had trickle down, and all the real all the real estate laws changed, and all the real estate got bought up and got expensive. Well, it literally got knocked down and rebuilt, mm. and then the landscape changed. Yeah, like I went to college out of out of the city, and I'd come back through those first years of the eighties. And just go, where's that whole block, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, Jenny swore on our other segment, so I think I'm just going to put the swearing warning on this podcast. So if you're inclined to not um, block your own Not speech, pull my punches? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, that'd be great. Um, so... Um, because of the, we can skip, I think, maybe a little ahead into the teen years. You had in your growing up a circumstance that flung you into practicing yoga. Yeah. So um, when you were flung, how old were you? Um, so as I said, I was kind of, I was like, in a way, the ultimate latchkey kid. Uh-huh. You know, I just had very little supervision and very little parental guidance of any kind although you know it was great upbringing but just had that kind of freedom and along with that came a lot of not knowing what the heck to do mm-hmm. so in my wanderings um i ended up this is a little bit there's like a tr- little bit of a trigger warning here for parents mm-hmm. but um i pronounced or proclaimed to my mother that i hated her and i needed to move out when i was like about somewhere between 15 and 16 yeah and she said, okay. <laughs> I said, oh, shit. <laughs> and she, I can't remember the circumstances, but somehow she, I think she rented me an apartment, this tiny little roach-infested, slanting studio um, in the 20s in Chelsea. And it was like right around the corner from the Shivananda Ashram. Mm-hmm. And I walked by one day, like I was just exploring the neighborhood, and I walked by and... um. I was like, it smelled like incense and mm. doll at the same time. And I was like, I'm going in. Mm-hmm. And I just, it kind of became the place that I went to for a little bit of comfort. And um, I just kind of hovered there for a long time. Yeah. Doing the practice and kind of hanging out around the edges. So it was like a thing you went and did every day or you went once in a while or... Um, you stayed there all the time or what? No, I mean, I lived in this, I only lived in that apartment for like, like maybe six months. I couldn't hack it. Mm-hmm. And I ended up going, such a long story. You don't need to hear the whole story, but I ended up living with a friend of mine from high school for a little while and then I moved back home. But, um, so those last couple of years of high school, it was sort of like the thing I did instead of smoking pot. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing I did instead of hanging out in the park. The thing I did instead of kind of falling by the wayside. And so it was, I don't think it was every day. Mm-hmm. And I certainly didn't, you know, live there. But I I would just kind of go and like, it was this, you just kind just of like fell in of line. Thing. You yeah. know what I mean? You yeah. just, and it felt really good and... I think, frankly, like what I got out of that was pranayama. Mm. (laughs) Like I learned how to breathe. I remember, um, I actually remember I would, I was a runner, a jogger at the time. And at some point I realized from having learned the pranayama at Shivananda that I was like starting to become aware of my breath as I was running. And I realized that that was why I was running, Mm. that it was like my breath was so dysregulated from all of the kind of anxiety and emotional dysregulation that went along with being who I was that I just, it really, that's I think what 
kept me going back there. Plus, the food was really good. Yeah. Like, you'd go up to the fourth floor in this old brownstone and, like, do this very sort of serious practice. Yeah. And you'd get the smells of dinner that you'd get afterwards coming all the way up. And it was like, Shavasana was just so blissful knowing you were going to get this belly full of good soup. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so great. I just did I just did that. And A way to Wendy's heart is through her stomach. <laughs> Always. Yeah. Um, but I also did go, you know, I kept up with them through college and yeah. well, through... when we met, you were, mm-hmm. you were still very much active. You were thinking yeah. of doing a teacher training. There. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so it taught you pranayama. Yeah. Taught and, me headstand. <laughs> and it taught you headstand. It taught me, taught me focus. Mm-hmm. And you took that into your school. Absolutely. When you went in, were in high school, and that because that's where you were at the time. You were in high school. I was in high school at and the beginning. And then you went off to college, and did you practice yoga in college? You know, I would say from the time I left to go to college until the time I came back from Russia as a young adult, um, my yoga practice was just informal. Like, I just did yoga on my own hmm. like I would do it because you know the Shivananda practice is like very rote right and so you just learned it and once I you learned know it, you know it, it and then I would just do it yeah and I think that's kind of their their role in the yoga world it's a little bit old school it's a little bit discipline oriented and um you know I came away from the years that I went there on a regular basis with a practice that right. I could just do. Right. And I did it to self-soothe. I did it to create focus. I did it when I was overwhelmed or stressed out. Yeah. And I I can't say that I did it all the time as a regular practice, but it, I think I I would say that it was as regular as, you know, any regular practice. Yeah. And then you lived in Russia lived after in Russia. college. Mm-hmm. And I think they're just getting into yoga in Russia now. Yeah. Gosh. And you, you became a mom there. Mm-hmm. I got married and, and became a mom, then came back. Yeah. You know, yoga went underground for me for a lot of years. But you were, at, you were studying at, um, theater. Film. Uh, film, sorry. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people who study film... Or study acting in the states these days end up learning yoga because it's a part of their their training They're, it's yeah. a part of the exercises that they do whether or not it's even called yoga but where you were it was that wasn't really a part of what was going on not formally but there was something about that culture that um It's kind of got a metaphysical orientation. Like, you know, if you talk to people, they'll talk about like the electromagnetic Mm -hmm. quality of the air today, you know, like, so it's kind of of Russia or just the the art artists. Well, they published that in the paper. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Or they did at that time. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's a lot of traditional knowledge still in the culture or i mean i was there in the 80s so i don't know yeah it's changed a lot and i went back a lot during the 90s and early 2000s but i i don't know where it's at now mm-hmm. i really i really don't but, but at the time it was just part of like people were thinking about that metaphysical underground thing yeah. you know not as part of the dominant culture but right. it it really um you know and were you thinking about it from the perspective of yoga while you were there? Like, you're, because you had studied at Shivananda, did any, like, so often we're sitting here going, oh, yeah, that's just like yoga. But. You know, that, that part, you know, embracing yoga in that way for me didn't happen until my mid 30s. Mm-hmm. So I, because it came in at such an early age, I feel like it was really foundational. Mm-hmm. But in my young adult years, I wasn't like a yogi. I just did yoga. Yeah. And I didn't 
think yeah, about that was me too. It's like it was a practice I did to stay sane, to keep myself yeah. going. It felt really good. It was a replacement for the religion that I had abandoned. Mm-hmm. And I really liked this notion of meditation. It was hard to tr- do, but I kept at it. Yeah, yeah. In my case, it was a it was a replacement for the religion that I never had. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And I don't mean religion. I mean just spirituality. Well, I think you know. You I know? mean, we talk about karma all the time as being this like your role and in and the role uh, emerges from your family in a very real way mm-hmm. you know and in, you just did an ancestry test and like in in your tradition of your family you were the spiritual people yeah you know? and yeah. so it makes sense that you would be born and stumble upon a spiritual place when there wasn't yeah. one provided for you and yeah and and it was in just so not validated mm-hmm. so yeah but I didn't embrace it formally until my mid-30s when I right about when I met you and at that time I had a full-time job working at a foundation going back and forth to Russia and the arts and it was like very full and I'm not sure exactly how or why I got back into yoga at that time, but when I finally you were so into it, when I, was I first so met you, it was like it. a regular thing. I would come over to visit you, and you would yeah. say, oh, "We can have dinner after I finish my yoga practice." Exactly. I mean, I went whole hot. Uh, I in around nineteen ninety eight, ninety nine. I just something happened. I I really con- honestly don't know what happened mm-hmm. or why that came about, but I realized that I needed to do that work. Right. And I just went back to it. And my kid was young and I used to take him up to the Shivananda ashram. Which was and, fun for which him. Which was fun for him. There were always a couple of kids. That's and, why he's such a nature boy now. Yeah. <laughs> and he would like joke around in the big meditation room and like try and, you know, get people to open their eyes, <laughs> which was annoying for people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, I I, uh, I got into it, and and at the same time, I mean, I have to say that the Shivananda practice, um, I went back to it to pursue the yoga because I I I had an intuitive sense of needing to learn how to teach and learn how to do like kind of embrace the lifestyle more. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I met you. Uh, it gave me this perspective that like this isn't the only practice uh-huh. and um that also felt really organic to you know when i when i <laughs> this is what i remember we would go to shivananda and i would say did you like that practice how was that practice and you go hmm and then and i was like that's weird like he has this other practice like mm-hmm. i just sort of saw that oh mm-hmm. not everybody just does this practice mm-hmm. And then um, when we went, you took me to Ishta, and I think it was Jean's class. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh, Jean. yeah. Mm-hmm. I went, oh, oh, this is so good. Mm-hmm. Because specifically, it gave so many options of how to approach the just practice in general, like from asana to pranayama to meditation where it was like, oh, oh, I'm an individual and I can adapt the practice to me because up until that time, and I mean, I was still fairly young, but I have certain physical issues and emotional systemic issues that make it hard for me to do certain things in a very intensive way. And I got permission for the first time to sort of back up and right. see how is this actually affecting me and maybe I only need to go so far or do so many or you know what I mean? Right. Because like it's Shivananda you do like it's a set it's practice. repetitions right. and you just do it, you right. know, and right. and progressing means going to the harder pose and every the people who are more advanced do those poses and Yeah, and not only that, it's like the the level of difficulty and like especially say in the in the subtle body practices, yeah. it's like a an indicator of your spiritual development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I so don't tr- agree with that mm-hmm. way in mm-hmm. general. Um, I think it's a very male-oriented, sort of dominating, discipline-oriented right, conquer your body. way to think about it. And I just don't, <clears throat> I don't 
it's not the way I practice, it's not the way I teach. And somehow walking into Ishta, even though the classes aren't easy, I was like, oh, this is a whole new game. Mm -hmm. This is a whole new way of being. So that was interesting. Plus, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, there's a certain amount of that lineage in Ishta. Well, that was something that we, we had so much fun with when we decided to take teacher training. And we f first, I mean, we, we, I hadn't seen Alan and taken class with him, but it, we didn't get to talk. So in teacher training, those first days, we were like, hey, guess what? I'm from the, Shiva, the Yogananda side and Wendy's from the Shivananda side, mm -hmm. which is a foundation of Ishta as well. Exactly. So, so it was a good mixture for me. Mm -hmm. And it really opened up a lot of pathways and avenues and potentials. Right. I hope you've noticed that I don't run ads for taxis or mattresses or food delivery or underwear on Peter's podcast, but here's a mini advertisement for me. An issue of Yoga Journal costs close to $10. A single yoga class in New York costs more than $20. A private consultation can cost $100 with a new teacher and up to $400 for a master teacher. I'm bringing the kind of content you would find in all those places to your phone weekly. Won't you please support me on Patreon? I'm avoiding running advertisements because I find them so annoying on the podcasts I like. I am constantly fumbling for my phone to hit the fast-forward control. But to keep my ad-free format feasible, I need for you to value this effort. You can support the podcast at any level you like and change or stop your support whenever you want. Help me keep this an ad-free zone, supported by the community of listeners like you. Go now to patreon.com slash peterspodcast. There's a link right in the show notes on your phone. And thanks for listening. Starting that same time, you began studying polarity therapy with Heather Principe. Yeah, exactly. Out, at exactly the same time. <clears throat> I met Heather at Shivananda Ashram uh -huh. upstate. She did a sweat there? Or she did a polarity No, she was there. doing a polarity intro. Mm -hmm. and, and polarity uh, is something uh, developed by this Dr. Randolph Stone who went to India. He was a, what, an osteopath? He was an, well, he was like a kind of everything he was an osteopath and a naturopath and uh, a kind of um, he really had a, a deep understanding of kind of what I would call hermetic philosophy mm -hmm. and he saw that hermetic philosophy in all of the ancient philosophical traditions including uh -huh. the Vedic right and um, you know, at the time that he was developing polarity, it was the time. It was like the mid twentieth century when everything was kind of getting very technical. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like that everything was getting very kind of codified, and like the physical body was the physical body, and Western medicine was going to conquer it, and yeah. everything the was scientific method. Scientific method, and and he was a very sciencey guy, right? Um, but he felt like we were losing the magic touch of yeah. knowing the energy that the energy body is really what connects everything together yeah and you know my experience with western doctors is they all know this uh -huh. the, the good ones know this mm -hmm. and yet they don't have a way of quantifying it so they just kind of don't talk about it right right so they go to their they well, go to so this, many doctors that i speak to now will admit you could do this or you could do that, but I, I don't have any data on that. Yeah. Well, they also see some people heal and some mm -hmm. people don't. Mm -hmm. And it's not because of anything they do or don't do. Right. Right. They do, you know, they have miraculous tools at their disposal. Yeah. But they only work if all of the pieces are in place. Right. You know, you can have the best medicine in the world and if the person is, you know, not using their own heal, inner healing resources, they're not going to, it's not yeah. going to be effective. Yeah. So he was that kind of doctor <clears throat> and he, he taught and he, you know, he, um, he ended up spending the last years of his life. Oh, pretty much in, in, you know, 
primarily in India, hmm. and he followed a very particular yeah. path. And looking at polarity from the outside, it seems to me that it's related to what in yoga we think of as pranic healing that you're working with pranayama and other practices touch like marma therapy think those kinds of things and even just uh, being aware of energy making connections in the energy to let the body find its healing state and you can elaborate that's just uh, from the outsider's view um You know, I would say that the most um, important sameness is that it's based on the concepts of the three gunas and the five elements Mm -hmm. and the concept of like there being one source of energy that comes through the three gunas and the five elements through these patterns of, of manifestation and that you can that these that these patterns underlie all of the disease and ease that we see in the body right so it's it's really just kind of trying to wherever those patterns seem to be creating tension or disease or actually disease <clears throat> whether it's in the emotional body or the physical body or anywhere else to be able to kind of interact with them from this map of the body um, that is related to the five elements and the three gunas. There's, you know, it's very much related to things that we learn about the subtle body in yoga. Yeah. In, fa- in fact, it is the same thing. Yeah. Just a different, it's like a different, the most simple way I can say it is it's like a different set of tools than yoga. Right. Right. So we're not working with asana, we're working with energy work in the body right right so people are going on the table but we're also working with connecting with people's story right with people's you know um the fixed mind and how those samskaras get fixed in the mind and kind of how to reconnect the thoughts back with the the essential inspiration for for somebody that's kind of trying to come through Mm -hmm. so in like coaching world you might call it life purpose work Mm -hmm. but it also can be very physical you know ow my knee hurts (laughs) and rather than like trying to manipulate the bones of the knee or the fascia or the you know the joint in its in itself we're looking to hold you know to to find out what's the pattern that's creating that and to let the body and the system in general reorient right but when you say find the pattern you're not necessarily talking you're not only talking about like what's in your head you're you're literally maybe setting up a kind of an electrical network using your own body with the the client and letting the connections happen that set the healing pattern anew like reset the yeah i mean i would say it you know it's it's so hard to to boil it down but um, you know, in the same way that we go through the eight limbs in yoga mm-hmm. and we talk about expanding beyond the pattern that we have, you know, we have these sort of locked in pre-programmed emotional, physical patterns that we live with and we can't see beyond them. And then we reconnect to the bigger picture. Right. And then when we come back in, it's a reoriented uh, relationship with our own purpose, pattern, ability to interact and have relationship. So that's exactly the same thing in polarity. It's just happening in a different format. Yeah, using different tools. It's one on one. It's ta- you know, it's it's really reflective. Mm-hmm. If somebody says, you know, I'm always. I do this in yoga and in polarity. Like, I don't want to put my story on top of the story. Yeah. I want to just, as much as possible, find a way to reflect the story that helps the student slash client get perspective Yeah. on their own thing, which is not always easy. It takes, like, you know from teaching yoga that that's hard. Yeah, well, it's finding sattva guna in a relationship, which exactly. is... Uh, could be one's life work to figure out how to do that. Exactly. Um 
you know, and it's a part of this work that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. when I when I came to this moment in my life, I was, you know, I had a I was a single mom, I had a young son, I think he was about ten ish. And I had a full time job, big job, lots of travel, lots of responsibility, kind of twenty four seven type of job. Mm-hmm. And um I just got the bug mm-hmm. and I enrolled in I met you first mm-hmm. of all I was like let's have a whole new orientation to life and I met Heather and I started studying with Heather and you took got me to Al and we did the teacher training so within from like 99 to like 2003 like everything changed I just mm-hmm. completely re-educated myself yeah kind of and that was really interesting. Yeah, and really another another karmic step because I had been on my own for five years, and in '99 I came to New York, mm-hmm. and then met you in 2001. Yeah, right? um, and that was a whole new life. 2001. Chapter. I think so. Because 9/11, we were together. Oh, that was 2001. Yeah. 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 So um, you and I and Ulrika Norbury are going to do a retreat in France in the summer, in August. And one of the main thrusts of this retreat, which will, the other thrust will be, it's going to be really fun. <laughs> but one of the the yoga thrusts is this idea of your life as your yoga practice and your yoga practice as being a part of your life. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that the language of what I just said kind of emerged from your thinking about the the retreat and also about what we do in general. I mean, I, I certainly think about that all the time because it's certainly the way I live but you put nice words to it in saying that so do you want to talk a little bit about what you mean by yeah a life, a life, life as practice is, mm-hmm. um, it's a really big and deep topic for me because I I think I just naturally tend to think of life as practice. I mean, I, I, I hate to sort of make it as closed loop of logic, but um, I see a lot of people compartmentalizing their practice and um, compartmentalizing the things that they do to feel okay, right? Like, it's almost like, they're buying a, a system off the shelf and it might or might not apply. Like it's clothing or something, you know, it's very external. And then they like, maybe they set up an altar and they have like this deity or they have, you know what I mean? It's like, and they go in there and they put down their mat and they're like, you know, then I did that and I feel good about myself cause I did it. And then they go and <clears throat> I don't know have life and it's not working for them in their life. Yeah. And, um, somewhere along the way in my own practice, I realized that this is about me living. This is a literally a way of living that only makes sense if it's seen that way. Right. So sadhana is not, the hour that you spend, but it's rather the way that you approach life. And for me, that's a creative process, mm-hmm. right? That if I wake up in the morning and I bring my resources to bear on the day, like, hello, son, good morning. And here I am doing my best. And everything that comes along is like there for me to meet and grow from. Um, and even when things are challenging, like, you know, if I have a really, really challenging interaction with somebody that means a lot to me and, you know, that feels like a negative quote unquote in, in the quotes 
experience that I don't want to acknowledge, then I have to kind of go back and say like, that is part of my day. That is part of my practice, right? That's what I have to practice with today. Right. Right. And some things are easier for some people to deal with than others. right? Right. So it's not like everything is a challenge for this person or that person. Some things are a challenge for me and some things are a challenge for you. And, um, how it's just how I meet that, you know, it's like, I don't, it's, it's the old, you know, thing about like, you can't, you can't choose your karma. Mm-hmm. You can only choose how you relate to it. Mm-hmm. So sadhana is about getting conscious of relating to your karma. Yeah. And that, you know, if, if it's a creative process, you're in it. Yeah. Right. And then from there, if you turn it around, you say, okay, so what are my tools? Which tools am I using right now? I've got a, I've got that. I'm that my life has to be met via sadhana. Now, what does that entail for me? Right. Right. And that's where I think we need a teacher to help us. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as a teacher who's helped some people with this, it seems to me that you you have practices and you have ways of reminding yourself that this too is part of practice. Like yeah. you have to <clears throat> figure out where is the pattern where you give up on your practice and you just start assuming this is something else that's being done to you. Yes. Well, and see, to me, that is also the other, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of ways to say this in a nice way, but a lot of times in our culture, we're taught that we have to have like a marketable thing, Mm -hmm. right? So as teachers, we go out there and we market our way to other people. Yeah. And that seems so off to me. It's like, I don't want to market my way to you mm-hmm. because it's my way. Right. I want to, I want to may or may not hold be space for you to come up with your own way, which may be a little bit harder. It might take a couple of more minutes. Right. But ultimately, that's the only way that you're going to understand what your life is about yeah. and what your way is and what sadhana is appropriate for you. So in giving you tools, I'm not, I don't want to tell you, you know what I mean? It's like, it's a very fine line for me. Like no, holding... it's a really profound thing too. It's like you, uh, the way I often say that is like life is for figuring out how to live life. Exactly. So what you're, I, I Tell me if I'm saying this wrong, but Mm -hmm. what you're saying is you're helping people figure that out, figure out how do I live my life in a way? What is my process? What is my challenge? What is my way of addressing that challenge? Exactly. And, and I know that the, the people that come to me to ask that question, you know, whether they're deep in some problem or they're, you know, whatever their stuff is that, um, there's some reflection in me. Yeah. Right. So I always am very cognizant of that Yeah. and it makes it both really potent and also really hard. Yeah. Right. Because I have to keep that in order to open up that space for them. I have to stay with what's for me and I have to act from that place, offer from that place. Right. But I always consider it an offering. Right. And I always am looking for the ways in which they can take that and then make it their own creativity, like use their own creativity to come to their own way. And, you know, I don't even care if it's called yoga, you know? Well, that's what I was just going to say. It's um, when I have a private session with someone we don't necessarily do asana at all mm-hmm. because asana, that may not be the place where the growth is needed in order mm-hmm. to make this change, in order to figure out how do I live my life in a mm-hmm. way that makes me on my path in a contented way, mm-hmm. right? It may be dealing with something else. It may be yes. uh, figuring out some mental loop. It may be... Uh, figuring out what is my purpose 
how do I get on that line that's taking me toward my purpose, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So a yoga private isn't like personal training workout. Exactly. And in fact, you know, once I, when I do sessions that are specifically polarity, I see in a lot of instances how giving a practice, right, saying you should do this, actually shuts down their process rather than enhancing it, right? So sometimes I'll even say to people, you know, they're like they want me to give them something. Prescription. Yeah, Yeah, like a prescription. And, um, you know, sometimes I do. I'll give a mantra or I'll give a, or I'll, you know, something very specifically call is called for. But, um, sometimes I'll just say, you know, let, why don't you, um, your, you know, your homework is to just see how this evolves into your life, you know, see how, what came up for you during the session plays out, you know, just be aware Mm -hmm. and see what comes up for you and then see if that suggests anything right right you know so that um it kind of puts it back on people to you know really dig into themselves for their own resources and i know that that's you know that's not the beginner course yeah yeah. (laughs) you know what i mean that's like already for people who have some facility whether it's with yoga or any other kind of um protocol or you know modality that they that they already Mm -hmm. have some facility um, but you know, I'm always surprised at people's resiliency and people's creativity mm-hmm. that, well, we're, we are, that's the thing too, that people don't know coming. Uh, we, we don't, <laughs> we, we empower kids these days, mm-hmm. but not necessarily in this realm, you know, not necessarily in this realm well, of understanding. I just broke a dream. <laughs> I just had a, like, I just remembered a dream and it was something about, Working with kids, working with the kids. Yeah. Funny. Yeah. You and, you, you know, we teach them about accomplishment sort of in this level, you know, and there's that whole like go taking it too far and giving you a star, gold star for anything. But we don't necessarily say, okay, and your life is going to be hard. Mm-hmm. It's always going to be hard from today until the end of time. It's going to yeah. be hard. And here's what happens. And here's how you deal with that. Here's how you address it when it's hard and what you look for is this is the valuable part and this is just the life that's challenging part yeah and you know it's funny that that you say that it it brings me back to the original impetus for this interview which was you know who are you as a yogi yeah and i started out with saying like i really didn't have very much parenting Mm -hmm. and the and the yoga was one of the you know my mother adopted all these kids but she didn't parent me. Mm-hmm. You know, she barely parented any of us. And I've always thought it was so intriguing that I got adopted by yoga, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, and they kind of raised me yeah. in this funny way. Yeah. They and gave you a framework. They gave me a framework and some, like, literally some tools. Like, here, go try this way. Mm-hmm. And um, and that that feels really significant to me. You know, I can't, I've never been able to get that get past that but you know i think it's really important to give it back to that particularly to that generation yeah you know at that people of that age yeah Yeah, because i'm i'm looking around and especially now i mean i i keep i'm really thinking about women and girls Mm -hmm. um and i think something about my upbringing this is really kind of counterintuitive but Um, I, in not getting parented in the usual social ways, like I just, if somebody's creepy or scary or, you know, anything that feels off to me, I'm out or I'm like, you know, I just have really good boundaries around that stuff. Like that's creepy. Bye-bye. You know, because nobody ever told me you have to be nice to men. You right. know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, and in fact, you know, a lot of, a lot of how I got around in the world as a as a young person was, uh, you know, to be very um, over, you know, a little bit hyper vigilant. But mm-hmm. it, within that, 
hypersensitive to what to the environment mm-hmm. and to Picking keeping my and, yeah, yeah and to keep my own safe space yeah um which nobody ever violated because there was nobody there to you know mm-hmm. to kind of violate you it would move out of that space yeah i mean yeah. so i i think that the, whatever else i teach i think that's really in it at the at those as a nugget like that and trusting your own intuition trusting your own creativity knowing that this life is here for you to develop and grow through and um you know but i i do think that that's i i see a really big need for it in the in especially around young people yeah and then if you don't get it as a young person you still need it when you're a more mature person, mm-hmm. which is what we see so often too. People are coming, like discover yoga after having mm-hmm. had like some piece of a career or something like that. And they're like, wait a minute, none of this is satisfying. Mm-hmm. But when I come to yoga class, when I listen to you talk about these things, suddenly it's like this breath of fresh air. How do I make that my life? How do yeah. I make that a part of my living? Yeah. And that's, I think, this thing you're talking about of yoga as life and vice versa yeah yeah i have to go and conclude a teacher training yeah so um it's been lovely hearing some of your story and we'll have to do some more yeah part two yeah three four five and six (laughs) (laughs) yeah yoga for the for the little grandson mateo exactly yeah all right, Wendy. Well, lovely Thanks, to, uh, Peter. to have post-breakfast with you, as always. Thanks for the cafe latte. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> Namaste. Namaste. I hope you're enjoying Peter's podcast. Stick around. We'll be right back. Wow, was that exciting. I'm very excited to announce a summer retreat led by Ulrika Norbury, Wendy Newton, and myself in Normandy, France this summer, August 14 to 18. It's called Yoga and the Art of Living Creatively. Details are available at peterfurco.com slash france2018. A link is in the show notes. I'm also heading to the Caribbean for an Easter retreat with Petra Reckbrandt. Details will be coming soon. I'm teaching a meditation training with my own teacher, Alan Finger, and Sarah Finger. The meditation training is this Friday, December 15. I'm teaching a 300-hour teacher training in Ishta in January. I also teach regular asana and meditation classes there. See ishtayoga.com for details. Finally, I'm using Patreon to offer opportunities to work with me one-on-one. You can subscribe for a mantra session or for an hour video private. Of course, as they say on public radio, I hope you'll subscribe at any level just because you value Peter's podcast. Go to patreon.com slash Peter's podcast. And by the way, I keep mentioning the show notes. In case you don't know what those are, these are the paragraphs on the page for each podcast episode on your app. Links in those paragraphs will send you to the various things I mentioned in the podcast. Easy peasy. Thanks a lot. Here's the rest of our show. I met up last minute with Jenny Bloom to have, an, have a chat. We haven't uh, talked for a while. Uh, the, unfortunately, the place we were able to find was super noisy, so uh, I really apologize for the noise level in this next little segment, but I hope you'll think the conversation was just as interesting as we did. Thanks. Enjoy it. Hi, Jenny. Hey, Peter. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Good. We're here... In a noisy cafe. Yes, we are. Talking about stillness. Yes. You can find stillness anywhere. It's true. And you probably need it even more in New York City than than anywhere else. Yes. Which is to say nothing because we need it more everywhere. Oh, and now we can't hear each other. Yeah, now we can't even hear each other. Okay, let's get closer. Hold on. I'm going to pause this. Yeah. So, stillness everywhere. Stillness everywhere and not a drop to eat. And peace on earth and stillness <laughs> to people. What's the right way to say that now? Peace. Politically correct. Peace on earth and goodwill to people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there, this, there's this crazy thing going on with mm. uh, um, sexual harassment and mm. whatnot. This is a seriously gnarly problem. 
and I, I find myself on all the sides of it. Mm. Like yeah. the, the fact that everyone is coming down on Al Franken right now is understandable and terrible. It's like a lynching. Mm. Yeah. And yet, you know, women who were taken advantage of, I completely feel for them. Mm. What I think is really difficult about abuse and harassment and victimhood and aggression is that there's nothing clean about the healing process. I think there's a lot of toxicity in our culture and a lot of disconnection in our culture and because people do want to connect when and, and also like there's so much um, like poverty I think like a poverty in touch a poverty yeah. in, in like caring in connection. In connection yeah we were just talking mm -hmm. about how hard it is to mm -hmm. build community of friends yeah. at all at all people who are available to you and I think when people get desperate they they act out in in sometimes really terrible and un, unacceptable ways and I think that right now what what the experience even um what was that hashtag me too me too me too like the me too hashtag on Facebook coming back and all and so many women and also men really claiming claiming their own abuse and really like speaking to it I think part of the healing process is saying this happened to me and being seen and recognized because so many of these abuses happen behind closed doors. Right. And I, that's that's the part that is 100% mm -hmm. great. Yeah. From my perspective, like yeah. the fact that women can't stand up for themselves mm -hmm. and it isn't something that, oh, I just have to tolerate this because this is the system. Mm -hmm. That part is fantastic. Yeah. Part of me feels like the bringing it to light, the, the making the accusation, the being able to now speak my piece mm -hmm. as a woman is maybe the adequate punishment is the wrong mm -hmm. word, but like, mm -hmm. and then from that, like once mm -hmm. that's out, now, mm -hmm. now the whole story is on the table mm -hmm. and perhaps then with all that information on the table, people can decide and Woody Allen was an example that came to mind to mm -hmm. me right away because mm -hmm. when it came out about him and his stepdaughter and, and things like that, you know, everybody got to decide, I'm never going to see another Woody Allen movie. Mm -hmm. Or they could... Be like Woody Allen is a weirdo, but I like his movies. But I like his movies. Mm -hmm. And the same with Al Franken. I mean, Al Franken is an incredibly great legislator mm -hmm. Uh, and a leader, but not in this one area. Mm. So, I think it's tricky. Like, I think one of the things about abuse when it happens for, in, a, in when it happens and it's not seen for a long time, there is an aggression in that too. Mm. And I think that the sort of aggressiveness in these stories coming out and this call for justice. I think that that's really equally part of this dynamic. And it, right. it's unpleasant because, yeah, Al Franklin has done great things. Right. And, you know, it's like, do we take this guy out of the game because, because right. he's been abusive to women? Right. But I think that it's hard to actually see how it all plays out. And I don't think we can skip to the later part where we decide if we take him out of the game or not. Yeah. I think we and need... It, and yeah. and the, the argument, the best mm -hmm. argument I hear mm -hmm. for the taking him out mm -hmm. is that the women who are put down or in any way restricted mm -hmm. or decide, forget this, I'm out of here, and thereby lose their ability to be their best mm -hmm. and rise to their heights yeah. because of these actions and also the have shame. already lost. So yes. why shouldn't the yeah. perpetrators lose, quote unquote, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's not about winning and losing as much as it's about the healing process. I think we, as, as people in our world today, want everything to be so neat. Yeah. You know, we have Swiffers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> everything can be neat. I we have can, one. I, I, I just got it. one, and I'm so excited about it. I don't I never use it. I, rare, <laughs> I, I don't use it enough. But you have other vacuums. 
I have other vacuums. Vacuums. Yeah. Which I also don't use. Enough. You don't use. It. Well, I got myself a vacuum for my birthday. So but I, I have a flyer <laughs> for a maid service. Oh, okay. Maybe that's the secret. <laughs> but we're obsessed with this cleanliness, yes. and everything is supposed Wrapping to be so sanitized. Neatly. Sorry, I'm not trying Wait, to, to minimize this importance of this topic, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. it's like comic relief. Yeah. Because it's so hard to take. It is hard to take. Yeah. Because it's hard to understand. Because it affects all of us. Because the the healing, like the mm -hmm. the line between healing and punishment is so gray. Yeah. I don't know if you can, line isn't gray, the area is gray. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? And I think in our culture we don't understand like what what punishment is and what healing is when you look at the prison, the problem with prisons. Oh my gosh. How many people are in prisons? How many people of color in prisons? Like these yeah. are not okay things. Yeah. Like for me, I don't think that's okay that that's how we handle so many crimes and no. so many things that aren't even crimes. Like people who are in jail who didn't even, who just couldn't have bail money. Right. The poverty issues. Right. Like, there's so many issues with how we legislate crime. And I don't think there is, like, a good way, but I think that because this has been such a dark and, like, corroded problem for so long, Yeah. it's like these guys like Al Franklin Frank are in. on... Frank Franklin. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. They're on the front line. Like yeah. they're, they're the ones who are like the ones we're seeing. Right. But it's everywhere. Yeah. Oh, it is everywhere. Well, and I think a big part of it is also Donald Trump. Like he's a huge abuser of women. Right. And of, of his own power. Right. And, and when we made that known, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Exactly. And so that, right. I think that really fueled the outrage. Right. In a big way. And people right. were just like right. tearing down everything they But could. that's the part also that makes me uncomfortable because, you know, if people who have more, um, who have, are more, uh, missing the word, but like more integrity, mm -hmm. yeah. step down, yeah. but the people who have no integrity don't step down, yeah. then what did we have? We have right. A, a new, a new shift in, in balance of power toward people who have no integrity. But that's like the current issue. Mm -hmm. Like, I think sometimes it's hard to be in the messy part. Like, kind of thinking about yoga practice, you know, we think when we start practicing yoga that suddenly our lives are going to become like really neat and clean and we're going to have the things we need because we're doing, you know, our practice. And, we swiffer our mess. Swiffer, yeah, we're swiffering through, you know, like pure yoga, everything is clean, like, right. sa you know, right. satya, we're truthful about everything. But, you know, right. we always have our unconscious. Right, and what's interesting is most yoga places have mm -hmm. names that imply that, like pure right. yoga. You right, know? Mm -hmm. Whereas Ishta's yoga's name is... Individual. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to deal with your stuff. Right. You're going to deal with your stuff, and your stuff isn't necessarily pretty. And we're not going to tell you that suddenly, like, if you do 30 chaturangas in this class today, you're going to get that promotion. Right. Like, we're never going to tell you that. Yeah. And I think that it can be, as a teacher of Ishta Yoga, it can be a little bit frustrating to... You know, not be able to give people like this grand promise right, of their right. own perfection. Right. But I also think that even as to speak about mm -hmm. postures having a perfection. Right. Right. And and like having and moving into this like perfect place. I think I'm just giving this like kind of like breaking it away from the political for a second because I think that it's easier to see with individuals. Yeah. Yeah. The politics is like an example of mm -hmm. what's going on with us in general. Heather yeah. Principe, a teacher mm -hmm. we both know. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in Long Island, you know, posted something on Facebook about how we're just not dealing with emotions. The emotions yeah. aren't getting processed, and when they don't get processed, it comes out some other place. Right, usually rage. Like, yeah. recently someone told me that the root of anxiety and anger is the same. It means con to constrict. Anxiety and anger. And those ang anger is one of the most unacceptable emotions in our culture. We just... When someone gets angry, we call the police. Yeah. When there's a fight, we call the police. Yeah. But it's part of our makeup. Right, right, it's right. It's part of the human condition yeah. to feel this this way. And so I think it's like how like my question as as a as a as a thirty something in the world building my career and really very interested in like people and what makes us tick, what makes us connect. My question, perhaps to the audience and to the world, is like. How do we build communities that create space for people to fuck up? Yeah. How do we hold them even when they make mistakes? Right, right. Yeah. 
Well, that, you know, I, I mentioned that I was uh, listening to Krista Tippett mm -hmm. this morning and she was speaking with two people your age mm -hmm. uh, who, who are trying to deal with this very issue. And um, one guy who's of an Indian descent, but not of any Indian culture or background, religion, whatever, he said he, he thought his, I'll put his name in the show notes, his first name was Anand, um, but he, he said that it's like we're lacking commitment when you're committed to someone, you're willing to deal with their fucked upness and help that work through, right? Be there for them during that too. Whereas when we're not committed to someone, when someone fucks up, we're gone. Yeah. And so we're in, a, we're in a situation now where everyone just is, is with something until it becomes challenging and then they, they say, oh, that thing is bad or wrong or not what I want, and then they Right. I think it's, and it's interesting, because I think it's, I think a lot about this question these days. I think it's about capacity. Mm -hmm. I think it's about our capacity to be with the discomfort yeah. and also to observe what yeah. is happening, what that other... And to, to be. And to, right, to be, right, to to just be ourselves be and, and not, not merge. And yeah, not merge, but also mm -hmm. not fix. Right, right. Just to allow, mm -hmm. you know, because when people are going through their stuff, it's not like they need to be fixed necessarily. They need to go through their stuff. But what's hard is that when someone is having is react having a reaction, we can have a reaction to a reaction. Totally, that's, that's the big problem. Yeah, 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 it's like popcorn, and then suddenly yes. you're like you had like you know a handful of kernels, and then yeah. you have like a giant explosion. space of like <laughs> right. filled, right? right? And right. going back to space, we were talking about space in the beginning, <laughs> and the space is completely filled up. Yeah. So yeah. how do we how do we be with the kernel of our own experience without becoming the reaction? Yes. Yeah. Well, you know that this is one of the reported benefits of meditation that it gives you space around your experience, so that in that spaciousness you can have a moment before you react. Right. right? right. So you have. A perspective that's slightly more spacious oh around gosh. what's going yeah, on. Yeah, I have to tell you this story. So, um, so I'm managing this wellness center in Midtown, and we had a flood, where we flooded. It was a accident with one of our flotation tanks, and the woman in the space downstairs got very upset. Yeah. Like aggressive, threatening, cursing, upset. Yeah. And it was scary. But as a yogi, I was able to see what an irrational experience she was right, having. Right. And as a business owner, I'm sure that it's probably she's already realized that that was not a useful way for her to react yeah. to our attempt to help her. Yeah. And it made me really see like how how my, my yoga practice has helped me to be with like I was scared when she was screaming in my face and cursing at me. Yeah. It was scary for me. Yeah, yeah. But I also didn't get caught in it. Right. I was able to hold my own experience. Yeah. And that's so new for me. Uh, yeah, and you know, it's so great because mm -hmm. stepping back into like mm -hmm. meditation teacher mode, mm -hmm. you know, people come to meditation and they start to do it mm -hmm. and they start to have experience of more calm, feeling okay, things don't bug them the way they used to, but it takes a, the next step to really realize, oh wait, this is from my meditation practice, right? That you start noticing in yourself these changes, right? It's one thing to go, oh well, I'm okay, but you know, still this is wrong and that is wrong and this is wrong and that is wrong. Right. And then the meditation teacher can say, well yeah, just keep doing your practice because that too will be resolved and then when you keep doing it for a while, just what you just said, you know, and you're a long, long-term practitioner now, so you recognize that in yourself. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's interesting. You're self-conscious, you know, self-aware. Yes, yes. Um, going back to the popcorn, <laughs> one other thing. We talk about sankalpa, um, not sankalpa, what is the word? Samyama. Samyama, no, not samyama. We talk about our, the seats. Right? Like there's this metaphor that tantrikas use and the yogis use about the seeds, samskaras. The seeds, samskaras of our karma. So we have these karmic patterns. Yeah. 
and they create our lives. We are the manifestation of the karmic pattern that is us. Yes. yes. So right. one of the benefits... And we always think of that in like a human form, but it's literally the energy that's manifesting as us right. as this human form. Right. It's, it's just a pattern. It's yeah. almost like a program yeah. that's moving through us. And so one of the things that happens when we meditate regularly, not only are we carving these grooves in our brain, but in the poetic philosophical way what we're doing is we are burning these samskaras out yeah. we're, we're shifting the brain chemistry we're shifting the actual karmic patterns yeah so that instead of continuing to manifest like popcorn they stay like kernels yeah yeah that's and great. we don't keep doing yeah, we the don't same have the things explosion. we don't keep finding people who are exploding on us in the same way yeah and we're exploding on them and creating more explosion we're able to actually start to be with the experiences differently. Right, right. Which is a, a big topic in mindfulness, to be able to observe what's going on with you mm -hmm. without having the reaction or leaving the scene right. <laughs> mentally. You know? right. um, and it was interesting, Rina Deshpande was mm -hmm. on the podcast mm -hmm. last time, and she said that some of the research that they're doing in the science realm is, is like that poetic description that you just said. It's like, the paths of samskara, the patterns of the samskaras, they are quite literally the patterns of your neuroplasticity. Right. You know, you're able right. to remake them to eliminate the old patterns and replace them with more productive patterns. It's, so it's amazing. It's, it's like quite literal. It's so cool that yeah. science is finally catching up yeah. to what the yogis knew for yeah. so long. Yeah. And we can literally see it. And for the people who need proof, there is proof. Yeah. That yeah. this works. Yeah. So it's worth Absolutely. trying. Yeah. So yoga's still good. Yoga's still good. Even though there's all this turmoil yeah. in the news. Yeah. There's all this turmoil in our personal lives. Because we can keep working on it all. Meditating, doing self-study. <laughs> Observing. 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 Doing the hard work. Yeah. The tapas, which yeah. is the purification, but it doesn't just mean purification like I'm going to go on a cleanse. Right. It means mental cleanse. Right. right. Like We're not getting When colonics. I keep doing the same looping thing that doesn't serve me, how can I interject a different move? Right. Right? How can I start carving the new pattern? Right. And it can be really tricky, you know, especially when they're long-term patterns, you know, we talked about. Because you have to be with the grief sometimes. Like, yeah. when you create enough space from the meditation practice, you need to, and you see your pattern coming up again. Oh, here's this human dynamic again in my life. Right. Here's this woman yelling in my face. Right. How, and, and then just to be with the experience of being really scared, to be with the experience of, like, feeling perhaps like I'm responsible for this experience, all my thoughts, all of my patterns, to observe them and not to be them. Yes. Requires a lot of feeling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we need to feel it. You have to it. feel all of that. Yeah, and you know, we, we, we've been talking sometimes about, you know, parental relationships, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. significant other relationships, and those are the relationships where the most patterning, most solid patterning exists. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And the most emotion has to come out in order for that stuff to start to carve new patterns. Yeah. So it's super challenging to deal with. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But dealing with it little by little by little by little mm -hmm. is the way that you can deal with it. Yeah. Just like digesting Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It will take the time it takes. It will take the time it takes. But at some point your body will be done with the stuff that's in it until the next time you put more in. Yeah. 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 Well, I have to go teach yoga class. Okay. You have to go yeah. manage the wellness center. Yeah. Good talking to you. Yes, good Peter. talking to Thank you, Jenny, you. as always. Namaste. Namaste. Go to patreon.com slash Peter's podcast before you get swept off into your next activity. Just do it. Then do a daily yoga and meditation practice, even if it's just for a few minutes. Then have a day full of actual happiness and deep living. Namaste. Namaste.